Today we begin our examination of the Gospel according to Mark. And today we shall focus on the first eight verses. The first eight verses, which are of course about John, known as John the Baptist, he who was the herald of the Lamb of God. We'll say a few words about the book itself first. It is, of course, the shortest of all the gospel accounts. And this may be why we see this book being preached on less than the other gospel accounts. But there is definitely an advantage in this book. This book has its own benefits, just like the other gospel accounts do as well. It's been spoken a lot of that Peter's recollection of the life of Jesus was one of the influences on this gospel account. If you want an example of evidence of this influence, we could perhaps mention that those details that refer to Peter's successes are minimised, whereas his failures are perhaps emphasised. This is why Bible scholars down the centuries have concluded that Mark drew on Peter's recollections of the life of Jesus when he compiled his gospel account. He may have also consulted the recollections of Matthew as well. And we should always remember that between any external sources that are used and drawing on his own God-given style peculiar to him, there was the overarching influence of the Holy Spirit guiding him in all that he wrote. The book is unusual in that it is very precise in terms of records of timings and, and places and other such details. There's also an emphasis in the book on Jesus' last days. Roughly speaking, the final third of the book covers just that period from Christ's entry into Jerusalem through his arrest, crucifixion, resurrection and ascension. What should we say then about Mark himself? Well, I've said before that if you see a name appear in the scriptures several times, you cannot, without evidence, assume that the same person is being referred to. We have in the New Testament mention of Mark, John Mark, and Marcus, which is a Latin version of Mark. So we have the gospel writer, we have Barnabas's nephew, Marcus, and we also have John Mark, who was the son of a woman called Mary. Was it the same person or not? Well, if Mark was John Mark, and Mark was Marcus as well, then we can say that Mark was Jewish. 
we can say that he was a helper to Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey. Sadly, when the team arrived at Perga, Mark went home and left them. Now, before we assume that he was wrong in doing so, we don't know the circumstances. Strictly speaking, it's not enough to say that because Paul blamed him for what he did, that we can say that Paul was right. Perhaps Barnabas was right. Paul was still a sinful creature, you know. In any case, there was a reconciliation between Paul and Mark. And Paul was to refer to Mark then as a, you know, a valuable member of the mission team. And this Mark then would also be the one that Peter, in one of his letters, calls my son. That is his spiritual son, his son through the faith. And it's not important, it's not important really to determine if these Marks were the same person or not. We can say that the writer of this gospel was not one of the twelve and it's not likely he ever met Jesus. Let's speak about John for a bit. John was prophesied about hundreds of years before. Hundreds of years before. It says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, Behold... I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Did you get that? The Lord was coming. It's also in our passage in the third verse of Mark's first chapter, it's uh, not quotes, but paraphrases. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, which says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Prepare ye the way of who? It says, Prepare ye the way of Jehovah. Jehovah was coming. John was a mighty messenger, but he was there to herald the messenger of messengers, Jesus Christ. The job of the king's representatives in former times would be to go ahead and make sure everything was planned down to perfection. These representatives of the king would ensure that the route the king would take would be an easy one. They would be known to cut trees down and, and level the ground off to make the path comfortable and fit for the king. And also it was the job of these representatives to announce that the king was coming. And in a different way, John was to be the one who would prepare for the coming royal visit. He himself, he confesses, he acknowledges that he is the one prophesied about. It says in John's Gospel in the first chapter, and verse 23, 
John speaking, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And not only that, not only that, Jesus too. Jesus too acknowledged who John was in Matthew 11 and verse 10. Jesus is speaking of John and says, For this is he of whom it is written, Quote, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So this is he who was prophesied about. It says in our account here that this uh, wilderness then, was prophesied he would inhabit the wilderness. And it says in verse 4 of Mark 1, John did baptise in the wilderness. We know where he was. I, I wonder how people picture the wilderness. Well, apart from those major conurbations of Jerusalem, for example, and, and then the smaller town of Bethlehem and a couple of others, most of Judea was wilderness. It was just describing a place that was very sparsely populated and a place that was uncultivated. So you can imagine a stony, rocky ground, fields and hills with maybe grasses and bushes here and there. It was, however, a great place to take flocks of sheep and goats and so on, because you could take them up the hills and just let them go and they would just munch away on, on, the, on the vegetation. It describes in our account also John's clothing and his food. Yeah, it just wants us to think about the simplicity of the man. You might remember, in fact, in Hebrews, it talks about those believers who were resorted to having to wander in the wilderness wearing nothing but goat skins. And th these skins were, yeah, they were animal skins and the skins would have to be prepared and then once ready, they could be wrapped around the body and tied with some sort of belt. The food as well, it was, I think, locusts and wild honey. Locusts and wild honey, uh, as it mentions in verse 6, was more representative of the type of diet rather than describing his entire diet. I mean, under normal circumstances, eating only locusts and honey for your whole life, you, you would be <laughs> nutritionally deficient. Nevertheless, it sketches for us a John that was living a life of simplicity. Locusts don't sound very attractive to us. I don't mind if you find a thought loathsome, but for many they were a delicacy. And surely I won't need to persuade you that honey is not something that is a hardship to eat, you know, honey. But like I say, the sketch given to us here is, it's about simplicity. John was wearing very simple, practical clothing and he was living off the land. It was meant, if you like, to show the other extreme in comparison to, say, a prince in the courts of a, of a, of a castle and having all the fine clothing and all the best food brought in from around the world. Simple. 
John's lifestyle, John's clothing and John's diet is very far removed from the experience of people in our society. There is no one who has to live like that in our society. However, I would encourage you to think about the, the basics in life. It says here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 8, Paul says to Timothy, Having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Let us be content. Paul's saying, if we have a set of clothes on our back and we have some food for the day or for the next couple of days, let's be content with that. Anything else is a bonus. So friends, I would encourage you in your prayers to thank God for basic things. The basic things, the things that are very easy to be taken for granted. So I would say in your prayers, I would encourage you to say, God, I thank you that I not just, I don't just own one set of clothes. I have wardrobes and drawers stuffed with clothes. I have an abundance. I thank you, Lord, that I don't just have some simple foodstuffs to get me through the next 48 hours. But my kitchen is, is full of hundreds of different foodstuffs. I have a super abundance of these things. And you can go on. Lord, I have in my house fresh, clean, running water. I have sanitation. I have a vehicle, perhaps. I have a health service. I have security through the police. And you go on and on. And I'm simply making the point that we should not forget, despite our circumstances, that we should be glad just to have clothes on our back and food in our mouths. Anything more than that is a luxury. And we should try to remember that. Well, the clothes John wore were certainly reminiscent of Elijah's. It says in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 8. They answered him, he was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And then he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. It is Elijah. So the comparison I think was intentional. I came across something interesting in Zechariah whereby false prophets would deliberately clothe themselves in rough clothing, you know, to try to make out to the people that they were a proper prophet. It reminded me of certain individuals in our day who wear the most impressive religious garb and have no clue about the gospel of God's free grace. It's all external. But... Were we really meant to think about Elijah? After all, he wasn't a clone of Elijah in terms of his clothing or his diet. Well, Jesus called him as much. He said to the people, if you can get your heads around this, this is Elijah come back. And the people were not meant to think this was some kind of Christian version of a reincarnation. No. John was a spiritual heir. 
of the ancient prophets spiritually. You know, I've read this first chapter of Mark's gospel many times, as you likely have as well. And our Bible reading means that we read maybe, I don't know, a a chapter or several chapters in one sitting, and we, we read it like a book. We spend just a second or two on each sentence, or hear each verse. And we need to do that as part of our absorption of what's in the scriptures, because we need an overview of the story, of the account, of the teaching. We need that context. But we should never neglect zooming in on individual verses. Because I fear that there is an incredible amount of blessed information contained in the scriptures that we might never, during our entire Christian lives, ever see. I've said this before, but I would encourage you to try this out. See if what I'm claiming makes sense. Try it out. Pick a passage and pause on a verse and spend a few minutes to get the full magnitude of what is happening in that verse. As you spend time on it, a clearer and clearer picture will emerge in your mind. And one of the verses in our passage today that moved me to to mention that to you about meditating on verses is to do with verse 5. It's very easy to skim past verse 5, which says, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, day of Jerusalem, and were or baptised of him in the river Jordan, confessing the sins. Okay, so we skim past that in our reading, and we get the impression that John was out there, and some people turned up and got baptised. But folks, it says all the land. All the land. Now, we're not going to take the Arminian's argument that all means literally every single one. That's just childish. All in the Bible can mean many, most, or all, every individual. And in our account here, it seems pretty clear that to say all the land and all of Jerusalem went out to him means a great many did. If there was some outrageous event in our own city, we we might say the whole of Liverpool was in uproar. Now, is that strictly true? We could find an individual at home who didn't care about the event. Does that make it untrue? Does that make it a lie? No. It's acceptable that if we mean, you know, a great many or even most of the people, we can describe that as all the people. And so here we can say with confidence that there were thousands of people. We don't know the population of Judea or Jerusalem for certain at this time. The the estimates vary quite wildly. But, taking all things into consideration, I have to conclude that they numbered thousands 
And we don't know the rate of this visit in John. We don't know whether it was one a day or hundreds a day. We don't know how long John was in the ministry for. But I would say this to you. That during his ministry, for thousands of people to leave their homes and go to hear the preaching of John and to come with repentance towards God and to desire to be baptised by John for the remission of sins counts as nothing less than a major spiritual revival. It was most certainly a revival. All this a prelude to the coming royal visit of the king, the king of kings. And of course it was a different type of preparation than the one I mentioned before. As a representative of the king of kings, it was not Elijah's job to cut trees down and to level a root. It was to declare remission of sins. John's job was preparing not the places but the hearts. God used John as a mouthpiece. God used him to initiate a great awakening. One of the greatest spiritual awakenings the world has seen. Thousands coming in repentance. Thousands. And how humbling and exciting it is that God can use just normal people. I mean, John was hardly normal like us in many ways, but he was still a simple creature like us. And God does use people like us to accomplish his purposes. And I would go further and say that God brought you into this world to accomplish certain things. And so what better way to conduct your Christian life than to search out what God would like you to do? All this... All this preparation for the one that Mark introduces in the very first verse. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that is, anointed Saviour, God the Son, the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, was coming to earth. And John was baptising people. And the Jews were all familiar with baptism, that is, washings, to symbolise spiritual cleansing, spiritual cleansing. We can see here the variety of ways the Holy Spirit works. For these people, it was the Holy Spirit animating them their whole lives, keeping them alive, in other words. They then experienced Another work of the Spirit whereby he caused them to be repentant about their sin. And for many of these people, they were also the objects of another work of the Spirit whereby he gave them miraculous gifts. But it's different for us. Throughout the whole of church history, the norm is different than that. It is slightly different we too, as God's elect, we have the Holy Spirit from birth giving us life. Every breath we take, every time our heart beats, all 
from God second by second. He sustains us. And then there is, during the course of our lives, a a Holy Spirit influence over hours or over decades. And as this increase, this increase, this awareness growing, and that builds and builds until the appointed day of conversion has come, when the sinful man or woman fully then realises that they are sinners, they understand the consequences of sin, both in general and in particular to their case, the terrifying consequences of sinfulness. And they're made to see that there is a way out in Jesus Christ. And he is presented to them as the only one who could save And so it is that they come to him and they receive forgiveness of sins and the confidence that eternal life is theirs. And following on from that, the Holy Spirit continues to work in us, growing us in grace, in knowledge of Jesus and his work, subduing that childish spirit of judgmentalism that Christians often have after conversion, And replacing it gradually with a spirit of humility and grace and a deeper knowledge of Jesus. It's this Jesus that was spoken about by John. It tells us this in Acts chapter 19. In verse 4, Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. John was, he was a slightly older relative of Jesus. He entered the ministry before Jesus. But he insisted that Jesus Christ was superior to him in character and activity. Superior to John the Baptist himself, Elijah, Mark 2. This is the John whose coming was prophesied centuries before. The John whose birth was foretold by an angel, whose purpose was to be a voice for God, whose ministry was was so powerful, he was counted as a prophet whose entrance onto the stage of God's purposes was described as a return of Elijah himself, whose preaching was used by God to bring about one of the biggest revivals of repentance towards God the world has ever seen. And John, whose life was to end as a martyr of God, he says, the one who is coming after me is mightier than me. Mightier than John. And he doesn't just exalt Jesus' character. He says his very work is superior. Jesus would baptise with or into the Holy Spirit. And then water was used. The application of water symbolising the contact between that heavenly salvation and corrupt mankind. What a way to 
describe the difference between him and Jesus in verse 7. What does he say? It talks about a latchet, which makes a great deal of sense to Oliver Cromwell, but not so much to us. I'll paraphrase perhaps. There's one coming, one mightier than me, and I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. It used to be said, you know, that disciples of a, of a, of a, a great teacher would do anything for him. But there were certain things they wouldn't do. That is, the most menial things. And the most menial thing perhaps was when the master came into a town and into someone's home, he would normally want to have his sandals taken off and his feet bathed. No, that job was left for the servants. The servants. That unpleasant job was left for the most low in society. And then John says, I'm not even that good. I'm not even worthy to do the most menial thing for Jesus Christ. Such was his humility. Such was his awareness of who Jesus Christ was. God himself. Now may John's humility regarding Jesus Christ be ours too. Amen.